Good morning, everyone. It's so great to see you this morning as we gather to worship together. If I haven't met you before, if you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and today it's my privilege to be able to preach the Word again from the book of John. I want to make sure I welcome you. If this is your first time to Sovereign Grace, welcome. We will be in John 15 this morning, and we will be, honestly, all over the Bible. So you definitely need a copy of God's Word in your hand this morning. All right, let's go to the Word of God as we find it in John 15. John 15, as we take on this last I am statement, I am the true vine. I hope you've been blessed by these. I've been so encouraged by this time in God's word and these great I am statements. They will feed us so well as we go back to Genesis next week. I'm thankful for that. So I want to read verses 1 through 6, John 15, 1 through 6, but the sermon will focus primarily on 1 and 2. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. For how your word convicts us, leads us to repentance. How your word encourages us, gives us boldness faith to persevere, how your word comforts us when we're hurting. Father, there's so many obstacles that we have coming here this morning, the distractions and the stress and the challenges of life. Pray that you would pull all of those away so that we might hear your word loud and clear, that your spirit would implant it deep within our heart so that it would lead to God-glorifying fruit in this church that would glorify you for years to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Encouraging other people is hard. It's really hard. I'm sure you can relate to this, right? It's really hard, especially when you want to do it well. Now, I don't know about you, but I just kind of assumed that one day encouragement would just get easier. That I would grow in my knowledge and my wisdom to the point where I would just know exactly what to say in most situations when people are hurting. But it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) I'm not confident it will ever completely happen because I often find myself at a loss for words. Almost speechless when I want to say something that really will help the people I love when they're hurting. I think part of my struggle is I don't want to become one of Job's comforters. 
None of us want to be one of those guys. I don't want to make hasty judgments about what God's doing in the world. Try to connect the dots, you know, too quickly between God's sovereignty and the way it looks from my perspective. And in the process, give bad advice. Cause people to doubt God's goodness and God's greatness. None of us want to be that guy, right? But on the other hand, I also don't want to be Disney. Don't. I have nothing against Disney. I have some things against Disney, but... I love Disney. I hope to go there soon. I'm excited about it. But listen, their advice sounds so dramatic. Right? Just believe and imagine and dream, right? <laughs> Keep fighting for your dreams. Don't give up on your dreams. Sounds so profound and encouraging, but it's just empty advice. They never tell us what to believe in, what to dream, what to fight for. There's no substance in any of it. There's no fuel for the fight to accomplish those dreams, right? Now, even if we can avoid being one of Job's counselors or becoming like Disney, which is just the way our world encourages, isn't it? We still have other challenges when it comes to encouraging people. Like we lack knowledge and wisdom, don't we? We don't have all the facts. We don't know what's going on in people's minds and hearts. And if we could figure out the exact words to say, we would still have trouble trying to figure out when to say those words and how to say those words. And to top it all off, we're sinners. Our judgment and motives are clouded by sin. Sin makes us blind to the truth. I don't know about you, but when I start to think about this, I just think, ah, how in the world am I going to encourage people the way they need it? And this struggle in my life has caused me to run to the Scriptures over and over again. Run to Jesus, especially both for encouragement for myself and also to see how he encourages his disciples. Because after all, he doesn't lack knowledge. He doesn't lack wisdom like you and I. He's not filled with sin. So his counsel is perfect. It's always exactly what his disciples need to hear at exactly the right time. And even though that's true, there are times when you hear what Jesus says to his disciples and you think, that's not good encouragement. I'm not sure how that's encouraging at all, like in our passage today. But with a deeper look into these words, I think we will see that they are profoundly encouraging. And they are exactly what his disciples needed at that moment and exactly what we still need today. Well, at this point in John's gospel, we are in the upper room. It's the night before Jesus goes to the cross. And in the previous chapter, John 14, Jesus told his disciples he's leaving them. He's going to the cross and he's going to die. And when he dies, they will be rejected. They will be persecuted by their very family and friends, by their own nation. So, of course, they're troubled. They're discouraged. Their minds are filled with doubt and fear. And they're wondering what they're going to do. And Jesus encourages them at the end of John 14, verse 30, with this. Listen to what Jesus says, John 14, 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Who's that? That's the enemy. That's Satan, isn't it? He's on his way. He's headed here right now. The final battle is about to begin, Jesus is saying. Look at what he says next. He, that Satan, 
has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So encouraging. And listen to what he says at the end of verse 31. Rise. Let us go up from here. Now I know we read that and think, those are just minor details, right? All he's saying is, let's get up, go from the upper room, and the next scene we have is the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're just getting up and going on to the next location. And that's true. They are getting up and moving to the Garden of Gethsemane, I think, at this point. But in this context, and especially in light of what follows, those words are far more than just narrative details. These are a sort of battle cry. A call to arms by Jesus. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Satan is coming. Dark days are ahead. Let's rise up to go fight. Let's rise up and meet this enemy head on. Let's go face death together. Powerful words. And because Jesus is not Disney, (laughs) he doesn't give empty exhortations. He doesn't give empty commands without telling them why. Or without telling them what to believe so that they can fuel this fight. So that they can have faith to persevere to the end. So what's going to fuel this fight in the face of death for years to come? Chapter 15, verse 1. Here it is. Here's the the great encouragement that will help them fight Satan and death. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Oh, don't you feel encouraged? Empowered, ready to storm the gates of hell? Probably not. I mean, most of us, if we're honest, probably don't see those as particularly encouraging words. In fact, I would be willing to bet that none of us have used these words to encourage somebody hurting. Almost none of us. Have you ever been in a situation to tell people, I'm sorry you're going through a rough time. I really get how hard this is. But don't forget Jesus is the true vine, and his father is a really good gardener. I've never heard that. Maybe I need to start hearing that more. But it doesn't make sense to us. It almost seems nonsensical. It doesn't even seem helpful at all. It makes sense Jesus would go to an I am statement here, doesn't it? In this profound moment, that's what they need. They need to know who their Savior is. But why not I am the good shepherd? Wouldn't that be more helpful? Or, I am the resurrection and the life. That's definitely what they need to know on the night before he dies. Why does he go to vine, of all things? How is this helpful, Jesus? And that's the question I want us to answer this morning. How is Jesus, as the vine, an encouragement to all his disciples? How is this truth about the character of Jesus going to help his disciples with their fears and their doubts and their discouragement? How does it help us? With our struggles, with sin in the world, in the flesh, in our discouragement, how do we know that Jesus is the vine and that gives us encouragement to continue? That's what I want to answer this morning. Now, I want to draw your attention to three things. First, the corrupt vine. Second, the true vine. And third, the ministry of the vine dresser. So the corrupt vine, the true vine, and the ministry of the vine dresser. So first, let's look at the corrupt vine. And we need to do that by by starting with the vine itself. Why does the vine come to Jesus' mind here? Well, I hope you've learned by all these other I am statements that all of these images are grounded in Old Testament images of types and shadows, aren't they? And this vine is no different at all. 
The vine or the vineyard in the Old Testament was the symbol of the nation of Israel. It was actually their national symbol. So much so that it appeared on their coins during the Maccabean period, the intertestamental period, and there was a huge golden vine on the temple. It could even be possible that Jesus might be walking by that vine, pointing to it while he's telling them he is the true vine here. We don't get that detail here, but that's on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So this was their national symbol. It was their stars and stripes, like it would be for us, or maybe an eagle, a symbol of freedom. It was their national symbol. They took pride in this. And it became their national symbol because God made it their national symbol by calling them his vine. Turn with me to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5. It's the passage Jason read earlier in the service. Great passage. There are so many of these in the Old Testament. We are just going to get a sampling today of Israel as the vine. Isaiah 5. Verses 1. Well, we'll just start in verse 1. Isaiah 5, 1. Let me sing for my beloved, that's God, my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. That's God saying, I'm protecting it. I'm going to care for this vine. He hewed out a wine vat. Why? And he looked for it to yield grapes. You see, what this is describing is the Father's work in redeeming the nation of Israel from Egypt, freeing them from Egyptian bondage and planting them in the promised land. But to what purpose? To what end? So that they would bear fruit. They would bear God-glorifying fruit. They would spread to the ends of the earth, be a blessing, and they would glorify God to all the nations. But we see at the end of verse 2, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, sinful grapes, bad fruit, useless fruit. See, Israel was redeemed for the very purpose of glorifying God through fruit-bearing. The fruit of the Spirit being displayed through them. But they became a corrupt vine. A failed vine. A fallen vine. And God would judge them for it. Look at verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. I will stop protecting it, in other words. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. I'm going to stop caring for it, protecting it. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. These are terrible words to hear for Israel. God judging his people, cursing his vine to their destruction. And we can see parallels here. Just like in the garden, they should have been bearing fruit to glorify God. But what did they produce? Briars and thorns. God turns them over to their sins and it destroys them. Destroys his vineyard because they've become a corrupt vine. This is a story over and over again in the Old Testament. Let me just read a couple passages. You don't have to turn here. Jeremiah 2.21 says, I planted you, Israel, a choice vine. 
holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruits. What fruit? The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. What? As his country improved, he improved his pillars, his altars, for example. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. The sad reality, even though Israel was the vine in the Old Testament, that's their symbol. Almost every reference to the vine looks like this. Almost every reference gets to judgment and looks terrible for these people. I know some of us are probably thinking, well, that's great and all. It doesn't take much reading of the Old Testament to see how corrupt Israel has become, but that has nothing to do with me. I'm not a Jew. I don't have Jewish blood flowing through my veins. I'm not part of this corrupt nation of Israel. And even though I live in Bakersfield, which with produce all around me, this whole vine fruit stuff, it just doesn't make sense. I don't understand what's going on here. It has nothing to do with me, right? Of course not. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. Hopefully it hasn't been too long since we've read these words. Excited to come back here next week. And I hope as you hear these things, your mind is already starting to make connections. You're starting to remember the very purpose for which God created man. Because even though we're not Israel, this is how we began. Listen to what God says to Adam and Eve, really to all of us here. Genesis 1. Start in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So why did God make us? Why did he create us in the first place? To be his image bearers. To be his picture of his character and his glory in this world by having dominion over the world, caring for the world, blessing the world in his place. And how is that supposed to happen? Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God commands them to be fruitful and multiply. And that's certainly about having kids. But remember, in this context, it's clear. God is commanding them to fill the earth with God-glorifying image bearers. To bear fruit by glorifying him through these image bearers to the ends of the earth. Does that sound familiar? It's the exact command he gave to Israel, isn't it? When he planted them in the promised land. You're going to grow as my vine and your fruit is going to glorify me and spread to the ends of the earth and bless all the nations. How did Adam do? Even though we haven't gotten there in Genesis yet, we know in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve failed. They failed to produce God-glorifying offspring, produce bad fruit. They ate of the, the fruit they were not supposed to eat and dishonored the Lord. 
You see what's happening here is Adam has failed in a sense as the first vine. The first covenant head. Just like Israel, he failed to multiply God-glorifying fruit and offspring. He failed to turn the world into this beautiful vineyard, into this beautiful garden, this temple filled with the glory of God and God-glorifying people. Just like Israel, he became a corrupt vine, produced ungodly fruit, fruit that robbed God of glory rather than giving God glory. And because of it, Adam was judged kicked out of the garden, and all humanity with him. Because he fell just like Israel fell. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, we too have fallen in Adam. Just like Israel. We have failed too. And even though we're not Jewish by birth, even though we're not part of the corrupt vine of Israel, we are children of Adam. We are united to him that other corrupt vine, our covenant head, just by our nature now. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but after the fall it is. And we too have disobeyed our Lord, haven't we? We haven't produced the fruit. We have fallen short of the glory of God, just like these other men. And because of our sin, God has rightly judged us, giving us the penalty of death, physical death. Everyone in here will die. That's the reality we face now in this fallen world. But we also have spiritual death, don't we? We have a fallen nature that will only produce fruit that robs God of glory. Disgraces God. And if we're left in this fallen state as this, united to this corrupt vine, we will be sentenced to hell for all of eternity. But praise be to God that Jesus did not leave us in this fallen state. We've seen the corrupt vine in Israel and in Adam. Now let's look at the true vine, the true vine back in John 15. Turn to John 15 if you're not there already. John 15, 1, this great I am statement. I am, a me, the true vine. And why does Jesus call himself the true vine? Right, why not just a vine or maybe the vine? That could work too. That's what he says actually in verse 5, doesn't he? Look down to verse 5. He says, I am the vine. Not true anymore. I am the vine. And you are the branches. So why does he say true in verse 1? What's he trying to get at? What's that true there for? Well, there's some of us that might be, well, maybe Israel used to be the true vine. They used to be the way to God. Israel was, in a sense, kind of God's plan A. But since they failed, they became a corrupt vine. Jesus was sort of God's audible. Oh, this is not supposed to happen. I better have another plan. So Jesus is kind of plan B. And so we might think, well, Jesus has just replaced Israel. He's the new solution, the new way back to God. It used to be that you had to be united to that people and obey their laws, be part of that nation. But now, and from now on, it's only Jesus because he's become the true vine. Is that what he's saying here? No. Please hear me on this. Israel was never, never supposed to be the true vine. Never. Israel was always supposed to be a type, a shadow, a picture of that great true vine that would come. And they were even a failed type of that true vine. 
Thomas Aquinas was so helpful for me in illustrating this. I love his language, and I'm going to paraphrase what he said here. But essentially, he said Israel was, in a sense, they were supposed to be a true likeness. A true likeness of Christ the vine. We know what a likeness is, don't we? Like a picture or a reflection. Like when you look in the mirror, you see your own likeness. Israel was supposed to reflect the truth about the true vine about Jesus, so that when Jesus would come, everybody would see him and say, oh, that's the true vine. That's the one they've been looking forward to all along. That's where their faith rests. He was the source of their fruit the whole time. That's what Israel was supposed to be. In other words, they were supposed to be a true image, a true type, a true likeness, but not the true vine itself. Does that make sense? But instead... Israel has become a deformed image, a spoiled image, a bad reflection. Think of a broken mirror or maybe those carnival mirrors, right? You look in the fair and you look all weird. That's what Israel has become. They're reflecting a lie about who God is. Aquinas says it's almost like vinegar. Vinegar is spoiled wine, isn't it? That's the picture here we get of Israel. They're a fallen type, a failed shadow. A corrupt vine reflecting a lie about Jesus. So when Jesus says he is the true vine, he's not comparing himself to their likeness. He's contrasting himself from Israel. He's saying, I am the original, the genuine, the only true vine. I am true Israel. I didn't become this true vine. I'm not plan B. I'm not the new way to God, the next Israel. I always have been, and I will forever be the only true vine, the only way to God, the one that Israel was supposed to point to the whole time. Now, you don't have to take my word for it, or even Thomas Aquinas' word for it, although his word is better than my word. Turn to Psalm 80, please. Turn to Psalm 80, and we can see this from the Scriptures itself. Psalm 80, and another one of these great sections of Scripture about the vine, and this section in particular really connects the dots between the vine imagery that we've already seen and the Messiah, Jesus, the true vine. Psalm 80, starting in verse 8. You, that's God there, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. Well, clearly it's talking about the nation of Israel, right? The type of the true vine. Look at verse 14. After the psalmist laments about God's judgment coming because of the failed vine, he says this in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this Vine. What vine is that? The stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. I thought we were talking about a vine. Now the vine is a son? What's going on here? Look at verse 16. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. That's a messianic prophecy there, right? That's messianic language. The son of man 
whom you have made strong for yourself. That's Jesus, the name he claims for himself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face, your favor shine on us, that we may be saved. See what's going on here. This is a messianic prophecy connecting the Messiah to the vine of God. Because this Messiah, this Savior, will bring life, will bring a better redemption than we saw with the nation of Israel. This Messiah will bring the Aaronic blessing that God would bless us and turn his favor upon us for all eternity. This Messiah is the true vine. That's what Jesus is telling us in John 15. And he hasn't just been telling us this. He's been revealing this his whole life. If we were to read through the Gospels, we see Jesus retracing the steps of Israel, the type of the vine. I mean, think about the way that Jesus' ministry went together. It begins with him crossing through the Jordan in baptism as Israel crossed into the promised land. And then where did he go? He went out into the desert to be tempted for 40 days as Israel was tempted for 40 years. Tempted to do what? To not trust God. To doubt his law. And what does Jesus do? He quotes Deuteronomy over and over and over again. Showing that he is succeeding where Israel failed because he is the true Israel. And then he returns and he chooses 12 disciples. Like the 12 nations of Israel. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. All about the law. As the law was given to the people at Mount Sinai. Brothers and sisters, these aren't trivial details. Jesus is intentionally retracing his steps. I encourage you to go read, especially the book of Matthew, as he walks through each and every one of these. Because what is Jesus trying to show us? He's showing us he is the true Israel. He is the true vine. The one that the entire world desperately needed. He is our true representative. He is our substitute. He is truly man. So he can live in our place, be tempted in every way, as we are yet without sin. And he is truly God. So he can actually be righteous enough. He's not fallen like us. He can pay an infinite debt in and of himself. He is showing us he is our representative. Where all humanity failed to be God the image bearers, Jesus succeeded. He lived in our place. He bore godly fruit, reflecting the truth about God, as we have failed to do. And where all humanity stepped down to produce holy offspring. We failed, haven't we? To produce God the image bearers, God-glorifying offspring to fill the earth. What did Jesus do? After living the perfect life, he went to the cross. He died in the place of corrupt, fallen, sinful image bearers like you and like me taking the judgment that we deserved on himself, and when he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, what was the result of that? He did that to produce God-glorifying image bearers to fill the earth. Not through natural birth, but through rebirth. And now it's union with Christ. It's always been union with Christ by faith that gives this life that gives this peace with God. 
that makes us part of the true Israel with God, which Paul calls the church in Galatians 6, doesn't he? If we abide in Jesus, we're united to him by faith. The miracle is that we can actually become even a fruitful branch. We can bear the fruit that God intended in the first place. Go back to John 15. John 15, if you're not there. John 15, verse 5, we see the great I am statement. I am the true vine in verse 1. But look at verse 5. He repeats this I am statement when he says, I am the vine. And now you, yes you, Jew and Gentile, sinful image bearers, fallen broken branches, you are the branches united to this vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, this is gloriously good news, isn't it? For all of his disciples. Think how this would sound to these disciples who are going to face death. Who are going to feel like they've been cut out of the people of God. Cut out of Israel, it would appear. Their family and their nation and their heritage. Everyone will think they're nuts. Like many people think we're nuts for following Jesus. And Jesus is reminding them. He's telling them, you're not the ones being cut out. You are connected to the true vine. I am the true vine, the true Israel. It's the unbelieving Jews. It's the unbelievers that don't repent and are united to me that are being cut out. You are part of the true vine. Hold on to me. Abide in me. And you will bear much fruit. That's what Jesus is telling these disciples. And brothers and sisters, this is gloriously good news for us as Gentiles as well, isn't it? As Paul says in Ephesians 2, remember that you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we are in Adam now, aren't we? Fallen in Adam, but now in Christ. Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Even sinful Gentiles like you and I are grafted in to the true vine, the church. It's not because our law keeping, it's not because our own righteousness, it's not because of the fruit we were able to produce. John says it, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. We had no resources, no ability to fix our greatest problem. And it's not because our lineage now or our ethnicity, our union with the nation of Israel. At the end of the day, all that really matters, all that's ever mattered at the end of the day is we are united to the true vine, Jesus Christ, by faith. That we are saved by union with him. And through union with him, we bear fruit. It's all a work of grace. It always has been. From the start to the finish. And brothers and sisters, that is our peace. That is our hope. That's where the encouragement is for all disciples from this time on through the rest of history. And Jesus isn't done. We've seen the corrupt vine and the true vine. Let's talk lastly about the ministry of the vine dresser. John 15 verse 1. 
I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser, the gardener. We've already got a picture of this imagery in Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80. We saw the Father care for the typological vine, Israel, by bringing them out of Egypt, by planting them in the promised land, by doing everything necessary for them to bear fruit. And they failed, didn't they? That's how God cared for the nation of Israel, the typological vine. How does God care for the true vine? God the Father care for the true vine, namely us, the church, the disciples united to Jesus. Well, Jesus actually tells us two ways the Father cares for this vine, the people of God, the branches united to this vine. And the first way is he takes away fruitless branches. Look at verse 2 with me. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He clarifies it even further in verse 6. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. He is taken away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is a picture of God's judgment. That the Father cuts away lifeless unproductive, fruitless branches. We've seen this in the nation of Israel. These disciples will see this firsthand through Judas next. I think these verses are about Judas. He's betraying Jesus even as he's teaching about the vine. And these disciples will see it over and over with people they thought were their brothers and sisters in Christ as they are cut out of the church And they fall away because they don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, does that mean that these people are losing their salvation? That God is cutting off living branches here? They were united to Christ by faith, but then they stop bearing fruit and they're just gone. We've seen over and over in these I am statements that whoever comes to Christ, he will keep to the end cannot lose their salvation. As he says in John 6, 39, Jesus says, I lose nothing of all the Father has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. So who is this talking about? Well, it's those that are united to the church only externally, only formally. They're around the church. They may know all the right answers. They may know the word of God. Maybe they even grew up in the church but they're not born again. There's no vital connection to Jesus by faith. And on the outside, they look like healthy branches to you and I. They look like they're bearing fruit, but it's false fruit. We don't have the discernment to see it, but our Father knows a dead branch when he sees it. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. And we hear this as a warning, and we should. Don't be a Judas There is a clear warning here. It's not enough just to be here, just to know about Christ, to know all the songs, to grow up in the church. It's not enough. We have to repent. We have to grab hold of Christ by faith, be united to the vine to be saved. That's what it means to abide in him. And if you are harboring unrepentant sin in your life, trying to hold on to Jesus in one hand and hold on to the world in another, you should be warned. But eventually you will be cut off from the vine if you don't repent and turn to Jesus. And this certainly is a warning, but I also want us to hear what a profound encouragement this is. 
Listen, this is a promise that our Father will cut away every obstacle to our fruitfulness, to our sanctification. It's a promise that the true vine won't end up like Israel. It won't end up like Adam. Sure, there'll be division. There will be problems in the church. Problems that you and I are going to deal with. But the Father has it all under control. It's a part of this process of Him cutting out the dead branches so that the vine will grow. Studying this all week made me think of the tree I planted in our backyard a few years ago. Planted a tree, it looked great from the beginning. It was growing, and then after not too long, one whole side of the tree died. Or four or five branches that just died. And I didn't know why, but I'm a horrible gardener. And so I figured, well, you know what? I'll just leave it alone. Maybe it'll grow back. Yeah, you know where this is going. For about a year, I just waited. I thought it would work. I thought it would grow. The other side grew great. And then one day, the slightest breeze, I'm not talking about a storm, a slightest breeze blew the entire tree over. Because I failed to cut off the dead branches, it killed the entire tree. I don't even keep the good branches now. This is a promise from our Heavenly Father, the vine dresser, that that will never happen to the true vine. He cuts out the dead branches to preserve the vine so it continues to grow and continues to bear fruit. And that's not all. The vine dresser also does one more thing. He also prunes fruitful branches. Look at verse 2 again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Why? That it may bear more fruit. Don't you see, just as the Father cuts away lifeless branches, he cultivates the living ones. This is a promise that God won't just protect us from the dead branches or the difficulty outside of us, outside of the church. God will protect us from ourselves in our own sinfulness creeping up to kill us. He'll cut that out and sanctify us. He prunes us so that we become healthy branches to bear more fruit. And this is the process of the Father disciplining the children, isn't it? As we get it in Hebrews 12, verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the ones He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We know this discipline comes sometimes with correction, doesn't it? As God the Father exposes our sin, brings it to light, that we might repent and turn from our sin to trust in Him. But sometimes the Father also disciplines us in a formative way. Gives us difficulty and pain and struggles and even just trying to wait on God's work in this world to teach us about who he is. Our father is the perfect gardener because he prunes exactly what needs to be cut out of us exactly when we need it. I know that many of you are going through a season of pruning right now. Some of you have been going through the season of pruning by our Father for a very long time. It's so easy when you're in the middle of that to shake your fists in God's face. 
to believe that our Father doesn't know what He's doing. That He doesn't have our best interest in mind. He's cutting at random. Just aimless, pointless cuts, cutting things out of our life, and it's not really leading us anywhere. It's tempting to believe that, isn't it? It's also tempting to believe that when the Father prunes things off, He's just wasting those things. That we need those things. To say, Lord, I needed that. Do you know how much I needed that in my life? Do you know how much I needed them in my life? How could this be for my good? How could this glorify you? It looks like it's going to destroy me. How can you be a good father when you're cutting these things out of my life? Brothers and sisters, the truth is the father is never more near to us than when he is doing his pruning. When he's doing his work as the divine vine dresser. We need to trust in the pruning work of our Father and abide in Jesus in faith and repentance. We need to draw near to Him, commune with Him through the means of grace that God has given us. The Lord's Day and fellowship and the Word and and sacraments and the prayers. God is giving us these things that we might receive this grace and abide in Jesus to the end. And trust in our Heavenly Father as He prunes everything out of our life that would hinder us in bearing fruit. I want to leave you with these incredible words from a missionary named Amy Carmichael. If you're not familiar with who she is, she was a missionary in India for 55 years. 55 years, by the way, without a furlough. Without a break. She never went home. And she spent most of that time on her back. In pain and suffering and sickness. Well, if anyone knows the pruning work of our Father, it's Amy Carmichael. Listen to her prayer in response to John 15. She entitled it, Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp steel. But with a tried and trusted vine dresser, there is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been lost to keep and gain to lose. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have sent your son to do everything necessary that we failed to do to live in our place, to die in our place, to pay for our sins so that we might be united to him by faith and part of the true vine. And we're also thankful, Father, as difficult as it may be, that you care for us so that we might produce more fruit. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to trust your word as you prune us and discipline us and shape the church into a beautiful vine that will bear your fruit to the ends of the earth for your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.